Welcome to Healing at the Speed of Light. Every week, we discuss how laser therapy is changing healthcare and how you can benefit. Now, here is your host and founder of Laser Therapy Institute, Dr. Jason Roundtree. Thanks for joining us again this week on Healing at the Speed of Light. My name is Dr. Jason Roundtree, and we have a special episode of the podcast today where this is a previously recorded workshop on traumatic brain injuries that we did at our Montana clinic. So we're going to be going through a whole lot of things on talking about what brain injuries are, how to spot them, and some of the treatments that can be done. Now, this is a little longer than our usual episodes, so you might want to listen to this in bits and pieces. Also, the audio recording is not really quite up to the quality that we like to have, but the information is is so critical that we wanted to go ahead and get this pushed out. So I ask you to have a little bit of patience, uh, both with the time and with the audio quality, but I think you'll find it very valuable. So let's dive in. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason Roundtree. I'm the clinic director here at Montana Laser. And uh, Montana Laser is a an integrated uh, medical facility. That means that the providers and the staff all work together on every single patient. So we have an integrated approach. That works out very nicely when we have both uh, brain injury type issues as well as musculoskeletal issues or neurologic conditions we're working on because we get several different people's um, uh, perspective and treatment options in there to make sure we're not missing anything. Our patients really like it. It works out well for us. Um, We see very, very good success rates. Um, Tonight, we're going to talk about what a traumatic brain injury is, what that really means. We're going to talk about how to spot them. We're going to talk about the current medical recommendations for traumatic brain injury. And we're also going to talk about new treatment options that have come on board just in the last couple of years. This is a rapidly changing field. We're learning more and more about it. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you. This is the bulk of my sources. I'll have other sources up here. If you're interested in where I'm pulling this information from, let me know. I'll email you what sources I've got. I don't want you guys to think I'm pulling anything out from nowhere or making stuff up. This is all pretty well researched stuff. This is most of what I pull is directly from research papers, which you'll see. But if you're interested, this is where I've gotten a lot of this uh, information tonight. The reason we do these is because it's our mission statement. Our mission statement is to improve function and decrease symptoms in order to eliminate the need for surgeries and addictive medications so that quality of life can be improved and maintained for our community. Now, if we're going to do that, then a big part of that is not only providing good care, but also educating people on what is out there for injury prevention and then resolving injuries when they do happen. So we'll jump right in here. What is a TBI? What is a traumatic brain injury? Well, there's a lot of words that get tossed around with brain injury. One of the big ones is concussion. And if you go online and you look up concussion definition or traumatic brain injury definition, you'll get about a dozen different definitions. Everybody's got something a little bit different. So we're going to combine a few of those today so that we all get a good feel for what a traumatic brain injury really is. So a concussion is a direct or indirect external trauma to the head resulting in sheer stress to brain tissue from a rotational or angular force. That's a lot of a lot of words. Basically what that means is that the brain ends up with an impact. It ends up actually rotating. And that sheer force, that pulling against itself, is what ends up damaging some of the internal mechanisms of the brain. Brain works by having parts that talk to other parts. So you can have the parts that do the thinking that get damaged, but you can also have the communication routes. Those can get damaged. 
And that can happen with this shear force, this shear stress. Another definition says that traumatic brain injury is usually caused by a blow or other traumatic injury to the head or body. So not just the head. Now, why would they say head or body? If you have a severe enough whiplash type injury where we rapidly move the head back and forth, it can actually move the brain around inside the skull. And so even a non-contact injury can give you enough force inside the head that the brain actually runs into the inside of the skull. So you can end up with a brain injury without any direct trauma to the head. There's some bleeding and some swelling that can go along with that, but we're talking about here specifically that mild TBI um, is, is what they've decided to determine, a mild TBI where you have some kind of damage to the brain, but not necessarily a bunch of bleeding, a big major hematoma, which can happen with a more significant injury. So we're going to work our way through these. A TBI is an injury to the brain that results in temporary loss of normal brain function. It usually is caused by a blow to the head, usually. Again, we can have another type of impact, a bodily impact or a whiplash that creates this injury. In many cases, there's no external signs of head trauma. So a traumatic brain injury has a wide variety of appearances. You can have somebody with actual skull fractures. They have a traumatic brain injury. You can have somebody that didn't even hit their head, but they ended up with a traumatic brain injury. There's a spectrum here, and unfortunately, the spectrum doesn't necessarily line up with the symptoms. You can have a very mild appearing injury that non-contact, just a whiplash that has some really significant symptoms, or you can have skull fractures that almost have no symptoms seemingly. So each case really has to be very individually evaluated. Many people here, it says, many people assume that concussions involve a loss of consciousness. Who's been told that? I was in school. It's not actually true, not anymore. They've decided that you don't have to lose consciousness to have a brain injury. In many cases, a person with a concussion never loses consciousness. So now we're starting to get into some of the symptoms, right? And how, how do you spot some of these? Just so that we're aware of what the, uh, the neurologists are saying. This is the neurologist definition, American Association of Neurologic Surgeons. They're the guys who are really gonna be the experts in this. And they, what they say is that the definition of a concussion is a clinical syndrome characterized by immediate and transient alteration in brain function, including alteration of mental status and level of consciousness revolt, resulting from a mechanical force or trauma. So there has to be some kind of trauma, right? We're not talking about necessarily a stroke. So these guys, what they're saying here is that it, a concussion is a clinical syndrome. Have you heard the word syndrome before? What does syndrome mean? A symptom? It's actually a collection of symptoms, a whole bunch of different things. So we've got this whole collection of symptoms that we have to look for, which is one of the things that makes TBI a little bit difficult to nail down to diagnose, a little bit difficult to treat, and a little bit difficult to even know what to do about it. We just talked about this. The injury itself is a spectrum. You can have really mild, you can have really severe, and it doesn't necessarily line up with what you saw happen to the person. Um, it doesn't necessarily line up with what you can still see. They have a lump on the head, they may not even have a brain injury. They may not have a lump on the head and they may have a significant brain injury. There are ratings for this. There's mild, moderate, and severe. Mild, we're going to be talking a lot tonight about the mild TBIs because they're the ones that really slip by people. They're the ones that are actually very, very dangerous because the mild TBIs often go untreated. They go undiagnosed and then they lead to further problems. You've got moderate where you have some really significant loss of consciousness, some real significant deficiencies that most people recognize as an actual 
brain injury, and then severe, where that's where we're talking about people that are um, potentially going into comas. That's, that's the whole further end of it. The other thing with these is they can have a very widely ver wide variety of, of duration, how long these symptoms can last. For some people, it's a few hours. For some people, it's years. That's the other side of that spectrum. So how can you tell if someone had a TBI? Well, loss of consciousness. Yes, if, if somebody has loss of consciousness, it's possible they had a TBI. But we already said it doesn't have to include loss of consciousness. So if somebody gets clocked on the head and they pass out, that could mean a TBI. It also might not. What else can you pass out from? Max of oxygen, somebody holds a breath long enough, kids throwing a fit, they pass out, doesn't mean they had a TBI. Um, or, or if you're in wrestling and you get choked out and, and you have a lack of, lack of blood flow, somebody doesn't tap in time, they pass out, that's not necessarily a TBI. That's just a quick blip in oxygen. The brain's just fine with that if it's quick. But still, loss of consciousness is one of our signs to know if somebody might have had a TBI. But what we really want to do is, is get into some of these other collection of symptoms, this syndrome. So if you spot something that you think might be a TBI, let's say anybody got grandkids in sports or kids in sports, you've got to be on the alert for this because it's actually pretty easy to screen someone to see if it's possible they had a TBI. This even goes for you know, your mother, if she falls and maybe she's displaying some of these symptoms, there could be a potential there that she had a brain injury. The more you can watch out for each other, the better. We'll get into the real details of that here in a minute. But this is how you, what you want to look for. Any changes in alertness, speaking, coordination, or any other signs, obvious signs of injury. The coordination is a big one. Watch somebody walk. Do they look right? Do they look like they usually do, especially if it's somebody you know? Are they off balance? Are they not really responding to things at a normal pace? You say their name, and about five seconds later, they say, what? They really took a little while to come back around. Are those normal things for them, or is that outside of their normal pattern? Was the person's body whipped around or severely jarred? The more you can kind of dig out details on these things tells you whether or not a concussion is possible. Who's heard of this one before? Pupil dilation. So that's where you're looking at the black part of the eyes. Dilation and constriction. So what is a couple things, if you're looking at the eyes there, that we're looking for? Normal means they're both about the same size. Somebody with a concussion, what do theirs potentially look like? They could be uneven. You could have very small one side, very large the other side. The other thing, too, is they may not be as responsive to light. So bright lights, pupils should be fairly small. Dim lights should be fairly big. If you shine a little bit of a light into somebody's eyes and the pupil constricts, probably functioning like we should. Shine a light in one eye and it constricts, you do the other eye and it doesn't do anything, we've got some kind of brain injury. Now again, not expecting you guys to be able to go out and perform eye exams. This is just a way to check real quickly. You can go through these syndromes and hopefully find out if a brain injury is likely. The big one here is confusion and short-term memory difficulties. Short-term memory recall, and this is the easiest one to do. So you're watching them walk towards you. Say, let's, say, let's say you had a kid who was injured on the field and they bumped their head, maybe they were out for just a second, they pop up, they say they're doing okay, you decided to help check them out since there's nobody else there, or you don't feel like they got checked sufficiently. They're coming towards you, watching how they walk, you watch the balance. They show up, you're, you're watching to see if they're responding kind of as they normally would, or they, they acting fairly normal. Look at their eyes, make sure they look good, and then you can ask them just a couple of quick questions. A good one is tell them four words, Four different words, just random words, light bulb, wall, laser, outside. And then have them repeat those back to you. 
If they have no problem, then your short-term memory is probably doing pretty decent. If they have any problem, any delays in repeating those back, then it's likely you're looking at a brain injury. Another one you can do along with this is have them count a lot of times backwards. Because it takes the brain a second to, to switch that around, and you can give them a second, but if it takes them 5, 10, 15 seconds down from 50, then you may be, again, looking at a brain injury. It's a collection of these. How many of these things that we just talked about here are obvious to it who's doing an exam the next day? Some of them, maybe none of them, though. Which makes it really tough if you're seeing somebody for the first time. Maybe I don't know you, and I don't know how you normally act. I don't know how quick your response rate usually is. So if you know somebody, you need to go with them to that appointment if they're going to go get checked out. You need to be able to give them a little bit of feedback. Like, he's just not right. He's not as quick as he should be. He's tripped twice, and he never trips, that kind of thing. Those are important factors when you start talking to the provider about whether or not somebody had a brain injury because these are not things that the doctor is always able to pick up on. Now, let's say kids come home and they said, yeah, I got, I got hit in the head and I'm okay, I'm all right. Well, you didn't get to do that kind of right away um, exam, kind of check on them. You can still do it, but we want to be looking at the rest of the symptoms too. Again, there's a syndrome, so we've got a whole list of symptoms to look at. A headache is the most common symptom. Can you get a headache from something besides a traumatic brain injury, though? Dehydration. is a big one. Lack of caffeine. Yep, caffeine, caffeine withdrawal. What else? Low blood sugar, stress, everything tightens up. Sinus infection, right? So this isn't bomb-proof here, but it is one of the ones that we're going to see the most frequently with a head injury, some kind of headache. A mild injury to the brain, it says here, this is pulled from one of those studies, may not really be observable in a routine neurological exam. That's what we just talked about. So because for the fact that diagnostic tests don't usually show any changes, diagnosis has to be on the nature of the incident and the presence of all these different symptoms, with confusion being a big one. So do we probably rely on the family members quite a bit for this? Absolutely. Who else was around? What else was observed? Definitely. Otherwise, we may not get a good diagnosis on this one. As far as confusion goes, let's define that a little bit. There's three principal features of confusion. The number one being the inability to maintain a coherent stream of thought. Now I'm a little bit ADD, but I'm gonna, if all of a sudden I start talking about trains, you might want to know that something's not quite right. Same kind of thing. And again, does this depend on maybe somebody that knows the person? A little bit. A little bit. Number two is a disturbance of awareness with a heightened distractibility. And that's a really complex way of saying that they're jumpy. Heightened awareness, they're kind of on edge, they're really easily distracted. The last one is there is an inability to carry out a sequence of goal-directed movements. So if kids get home and you say, hey, would you vacuum the living room? And they're vacuuming and all of a sudden they're just kind of over here like picking at the wall. They're not following those really simple directions. That could be a sign of confusion, which is one of our TBI symptoms. Can be. It may not be. But why would that be? See, the thing with traumatic brain injuries is you can have damage to that short-term memory center, but you can also have a communicating damage where all of a sudden things just aren't talking like they should.
that's where we end up with some of these symptoms is that we've got sections of the brain that all of a sudden they're not talking to other sections of the brain like they're supposed to. Or they might at one point and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's not happening anymore. So right. Yep. But a lot of it comes back to, you know, if you knew the person prior and, and how they were, too. If you take a kid who's super focused, super driven, and they have a head injury and the next day they can't sit still through a class, mm, that's a pretty good indicator. Even if they're a kid. If you know that kid usually sits still, pays attention, does great on focus, but that's, again, specific to what you know about that kid. If you notice this in yourself, you want to be able to spot it. If you notice you're not making it through a project, you start moving around the dishes, you're going to rearrange something, and then all of a sudden you're half you're halfway done and you're off in the living room moving couches. That might be unusual for you. <laughs> is that your norm? <laughs> but see, and that's not, for some of us, and me included, that's kind of my norm. Multitasking, moving from one to another, never quite getting done. That's not really a sign of a brain injury. But if if you were a, <laughs> yeah, if you, but if you were a, a single task, single-minded individual, after you slipped and fell down the steps you can't complete a task to save your life, that's an indicator of one of these symptoms. Uh, um, and age, of course. You know, if you're talking about a 10-year-old kid, are they going to necessarily always remember to go back and finish those tasks? Right. Maybe not. But if that kid a week ago had no problem finishing tasks, and all of a sudden they do, that's suspicious. That's suspicious. And that's the whole point of recognizing this stuff, is to get some suspicions going on so that you guys spot this stuff in other people and in yourself so you can get it evaluated. You're not gonna be able to say, hmm, I know they had a brain injury sometimes. Sometimes you can, sometimes you definitely can, but there are gonna be times where you're like, I, it doesn't seem quite right, we need to get this checked out. All right, now we're stepping up to kind of the, um, the more moderate, uh, the symptoms of more significant uh, traumatic brain injury symptoms. So the prolonged headache, the recurring headache also is one of those. Vision disturbances. What kind of visual disturbances? Anybody know any? Double vision. Double vision, absolutely. Flashing in the vision. Fuzziness, just inability to really focus on things. Irritation when looking at screens. That's another one. That sensitivity to light. Mm -hmm. You can end up with dizziness, nausea, vomiting, impaired balance, confusion. We talked about that one already. Memory loss, ringing in the ears. Now, I'm an artillery guy, so I've got some ringing in my ears, but that's not because I had a TBI. Does that make sense? However, if I fell over here and smacked my head and then had an increased ringing in the ears, that's certainly a sign of TBI. Does that make sense? So we can't just say, oh, well, one time I was dizzy and I don't think I remember things as well and I've got ringing in my ears. Maybe I had a TBI. We have to have some kind of trauma that instigates this thing. We have to have some kind of trauma that starts it, and we have to have a change from where we were to where we are now. Difficulty concentrating is a big one, and then sensitivity to light. This one is interesting. Mm -hmm. Loss of smell or taste. Anybody ever lost their sense of smell or taste? Yeah? I've lost my sense of taste before and smell when I've had, like, you know, a good sinus infection, right? That's not, that's not TBI related. But one of the interesting things with smell is that the nerves come off the brain, the nerves that sense smells, they come off the brain, and they come straight down into your sinus cavities. And there's all these little nerve endings, and they go through these tiny little holes in the skull to get down to where they can smell things. If you have a severe enough brain injury, it'll actually 
shear those right off. And it's not painful because they're your smelling nerves, right? They're not pain nerves. You don't even notice it sometimes. A couple days later, you realize, I haven't smelled a meal, and everything's tasted gross for the last couple days. I'm breathing fine. What's going on here? It could be tied back to TBI. Okay, going up to the next one. These are severe symptoms. So pain, neck pain, head pain, constant, constant head pain, recurring headache, really severe. Uh, motor dysfunction, the inability to control or coordinate motor functions or, or a disturbance. Um, so that's, that's that ability to actually go ahead and keep track of where you're at, being able to walk in a straight line, being able to have that coordinated reach if you're reaching for something. If you see this one, we then it's it's a lot of times, and especially if we've got any kind of history of, of head injury, it a lot of times ties back. Somebody reaching for something and missing it completely and taking a couple times to kind of get there, that's not a real good sign. That's, that can be tied back to a severe TBI. Changes in the ability to hear, taste, or see, dizziness, Hypersensitivity to lighter sounds. So this isn't just like, oh, it's kind of bright. I don't really like it. This is, this is, I can't handle any kind of light in a dark room. I need complete silence. That level of, of pain and, dis and uh, discomfort. And then cognitive, shortened attention span, easily distracted, overstimulated by just simple environmental stuff. I mean, even stuff that, and again, we're looking at changes, right? So traffic passing by is a really common one. We will go to get in the car even as a passenger, and just the, the act of traffic going by on one side of the road or the other really kind of throws folks for a loop. Difficulty staying focused on a task, following directions or understanding information, a feeling of disorientation, confusion, and any other neuropsychological deficiencies. Then also speech. Dysarthritic speech is what they call this one. And that's where you're, you know what the word is, but you just can't, can't quite get it out. And we've all had that probably before at some point, right? Just briefly. Um, and a lot of times it comes back to you're tired or something like that. This is, we're talking about multiple times within a conversation that this happens. Okay, post-concussive syndrome. All right, this is, this is still very new stuff. There's a lot of doctors who haven't even heard about these conditions. Matter of fact, um, the, uh, the uh, Association of Neurologists, American Association of Neuro Neurologists, they refer back to Wikipedia for their information yeah. on concussive syndrome. Because it, there's just not a lot that's been really shown out there yet, and there's not a lot being taught about this. Post-concussive syndrome is continuing symptoms from brain injury. So yes, a lot of times these are short-term symptoms that can show up after a brain injury, and with a mild brain injury, they can resolve, given the right environment, but we have to be on the lookout for post-concussive syndrome where they actually continue ongoing. It's estimated about 15% of one impact TBIs, single incident TBIs, result in this post-concussive syndrome. Now, they're pulling the number from a very small study. I think the number's closer to 50%. I really do. We have these ongoing issues, and they, a lot of times, are an undiagnosed traumatic brain injury, or people don't realize that they could tie back into the brain injury they had, where this goes on and on. What defines post-concussive? Post-concussive, so after concussion, meaning that outside of the window of what we'd normally expect people to recover within just a few days from a, from a, from a mild concussion, it's still ongoing. It's still happening. Ten years later, it's still happening. Do people normally recover from concussion within days? 
there's a window where right now the data says, what little bit of data we have says that people can recover. And the doctor's recommendations right now are a couple days of rest. Sometimes that works out well, sometimes it doesn't. Again, a big piece of this is whether we're diagnosing this thing appropriately. Because there's a lot of brain injuries that just fly under the radar and never get diagnosed. And that's dangerous, which I'll talk about here in just a minute. The symptoms from post-concussive syndrome include memory and concentration problems, mood swings, personality changes, headaches, fatigue, dizziness, insomnia, and excessive drowsiness, which I think insomnia and excessive drowsiness probably go together. If you're not sleeping much, you're probably going to be tired. But the point there is you can have some of these kind of confusing symptoms that seem like they could come from several different things, but they can tie back into this post-concussive syndrome. So if you got somebody that had a concussion a few years ago and they just never quite been the same person, it could be tied back into what they have dealt with on the post-concussive side. There's behavioral changes that are a part of post-concussive syndrome. So um, they can include suicide attempts and suicide. They tie all that back into post-concussive syndromes. Have you, have you seen anybody heard of post-concussive syndrome before today? Okay. And that's, again, it's not your fault. This is fairly new stuff. And a lot of the doctors that we have, unless they're doing a lot of work on this, they may just not even know about it. I didn't get taught about it in school, and that was only like 10 years ago. You go back to some of the guys who've been in practice for 30 years, unless they're really on top of their game and really pursuing some of this stuff, they may have no idea. I think we can understand at this point why it's important to avoid these injuries. We want to avoid some of these problems, and especially if you're in that percentage of people who end up with longer-term problems, that post-concussive syndrome, we don't want to get into that. So it's easy to say, well, yeah, of course, we want to avoid injuries. So how, how do we get to avoid some of these injuries? Well, obviously, protective gear is important if you're doing sports, but there's a lot of times where you really cannot prevent some of these injuries. You can't always prevent slipping down the stairs. You can't always prevent a little bit of water being on the floor and your feet going out from under. You can't prevent sitting in a red light getting rear-ended. Because can you get a traumatic brain injury from a whiplash? Oh yeah, we already talked about it. You don't have to even have a head contact, a head impact. It can just be enough violent motion with the head and the neck that it can damage the brain. So there's only so much you can do. Definitely encourage you to wear your ice cleats, don't wear socks on the stairs, you know, things like that. But things do happen. So when they do, is it important to address a concussion quickly or is it better to wait and see? You're safer to address it sooner. The sooner you can address it, the sooner we can make sure there's no active bleeding on the brain, but also we can get it diagnosed correctly. If you have an accurate diagnosis, then you can have a much better shot at good recovery. And a second concussion is really, really bad. A second concussion soon after the first one does not even have to be very strong for its effects to be permanently disabling or deadly. If you have a concussion, it's not diagnosed, it's not spotted, and you go right back into the same activity and receive a second concussion, it can be really horrific and it can be really mild. So I'll give you guys an example. Um, one of the first concussion um, folks that, we, that I personally had treated with laser was when I was out in Pennsylvania about five years ago. 14-year-old girl playing soccer. Um, they, she went up uh, to head a ball and they ended up cracking skulls. I mean, pretty significant injury. She lost consciousness briefly. They got her up, they checked her. They said, yeah, 
take a couple days off, but she had really no symptoms. So they got her back into the game two days later. That's in game. There was a somebody passed the ball. She wasn't facing. It wasn't. It was just a nice little soft arc. Ball hit her inside of the head. Passed out. Vomiting, nausea, developed dyslexia over the next day. Severe sensitivity, severe sensitivity to light. Uh, severe sensitivity to sound. The point they had to pull her out of school because she was failing out. She couldn't handle conversations with friends. It was bad. By the time I got to see her, it had already been two months, and it was not good. Keep in mind, that second impact was really mild, and it was two days after the first one. But because they didn't limit her activity, because they put her back into that situation, she was vulnerable. They just didn't know. Just didn't know. The coach didn't know. The doctors didn't know. But that second injury can be really, really significant. So if you have an initial injury and you know you've had a TBI, whatever activity that you might be doing that has the chance of promoting another brain injury, you have to be able to scale that back until you're recovered from the first one. Now, the gal I told you about, she came to see us. We had her fixed in about two weeks. She was back to school and everything. So has a happy ending. But still, if they kept her off the field for a few days and then actually rechecked her to make sure she was really doing okay, she probably would not have had nearly the level of damage. It's very important to avoid that second concussion. Do they say what is actually happening between the first and the second? So we, we have a tolerance for some level of injury, right? If I, if I go over here and I bang my arm to the wall, eh, you know, I'll probably be okay. If I do five of those, I'm not as okay. Because my tolerance, my ability to recover from that is much, much lower each time I damage those tissues more. The same thing's true with the brain, only the brain has a little bit lower threshold for being able to take injury, and it takes longer to recover. So in that window of time where the brain's trying to recover from the initial injury, it is more vulnerable, does not take very much impact, does not take very much um, force to generate a more significant concussion. And swelling. The, the first one might not involve any swelling, but the second one really could. So second impact syndrome results from the acute, often fatal brain swelling that occurs when a second concussion is sustained before complete recovery from a previous concussion is taken care of. So. Being sure that if, if you're if you're helping out coaching kids or you've got grandkids that are playing or whatever, making sure that if they've had a brain injury that it's been evaluated, that they have an actual treatment plan, that they're being checked before they go back on the field by somebody who's competent to do that is very important. Because they might be fine with that first one, but that second one could be really, really awful. Is this getting out to coaches through the schools? We're trying. We're trying. It's better now than it was a couple years ago. Um, but but still, you know, we're it's hard. It's hard to change what's been taught. Um, especially if the kid seems fine. Yes, and I mean, like I said, when I was in school ten years ago, they were teaching us that if you didn't have a loss of or loss of consciousness, it wasn't a concussion. It's not true at all. We know that now, but if I wasn't doing the research, I'd still be working with what I was taught in school. Um, and you just can't be an expert in everything. So your coaches are busy staying on top of their training methods and things like that. Maybe they're not getting the updates you make. And, and the thing is, we do this for this reason, so that hopefully you guys can go and spread some of this knowledge too. Because the more of these we can avoid, the healthier all of us are, our kids and everything. Because what we already talk about, personality changes. 
we see a lot of addictive personality changes in post-concussive syndrome. So now we've got somebody who's more prone to end up in alcoholism or drug abuse. And that affects all of us as a community. So the more we can know about what's going on here and promote this, the better. The more you can spread that knowledge, the better. Especially if you've got somebody who's in a key position uh, for athletics or even for elderly care, right? Because we've got, and, and not even elderly, people that fall and bang their head all the time. And if we're not on top of this stuff, you can have somebody in their 30s or 40s who has goes through these massive changes um, that don't really make any sense until you realize they went through a brain injury. With me so far? All right. So we need a diagnosis. That's the thing. We've been building up to this. We need to get a diagnosis. We need everybody who witnessed it, who's been around this person, to help get that diagnosis, though. Because the testing is really limited. The main thing we have, the main tool we have is that physical and neurological exam. But a lot of that depends on somebody else going, this person's not right. They're not thinking clearly. We can do some mental checks, we can do some mental exams, uh, mental acuity, but we may not have a baseline on somebody. If, if I were to see you, I'm not sure who you are, I'm sorry. But if I were to see you, I don't know what your baseline is. If you had an injury right now, I couldn't tell you where you were before to right now. It's hard to know. And that right there is also why CAT scans and MRIs are just not that valuable in a lot of these. You can use a CT scan to make sure there's no active bleeding. And that's important. Because if you have bleeding on the brain, it compresses the brain and causes the injury to be worse. But a lot of traumatic brain injuries don't involve bleeding. So CT and MRI will show you what the structure of the brain looks like, but it's just going to kind of look like this, whether it's damaged or not. So we don't have a picture of your brain before the injury. We don't have a picture of your brain. We just have this picture afterward. Um, so even the really advanced studies, the functional MRIs, where they can actually see brain activity, if we don't have one of those before the head injury, it's almost useless after because we don't have anything to compare it to. And everybody's brain works a little bit differently. So testing-wise, a lot of it depends on the patient, what they can tell us, and those around the patient, and their kind of judgment call on what's different. And then we can dig into that and try and find out more to really determine how significant the injury is. But a lot of times, we just that's the only way we can judge these things. And then you've got to decide on, once we've got our diagnosis and any testing has been done, we've got to decide if we're going to do treatment. If there is any treatment that's needed versus no treatment. Now, no treatment just means full return to activities. So even self-care at home is a, is a form of treatment. Even rest is a treatment. We've got to decide what we're going to do there. Current, the current recommendations for care, we'll get to those in just a minute here. But we've gone over a lot of things that sound really, really negative on brain injury. There's a lot of damage that's potentially, that potentially can happen. Some of it can last for years. Some of it can vastly alter a person. Is there any hope? There is. Um, this is another big wall of text, but I just want to pull out here. Spontaneous cognitive improvement, so that just recovery is not uncommon, but is limited and isn't normally seen after the first two years. So we have a two-year window where somebody can recover. After that, it's very unlikely they will on their own. Again, this is why it's important that we get our diagnosis and our testing, because the clock starts ticking from that first injury. And the second injury shortens up that time frame quite a bit. 
So we have to have a good diagnosis, we have to have testing, and then we have to decide if we're gonna do some kind of treatment because the data does say that there is some type of innate mechanism for repair and regeneration in the brain. It can happen, and it can happen on its own, but a lot of cases needs a little bit of help to stimulate that change to make it happen. This is our disease timeline for cancer. It's got a beginning and it's got an end. What happens at the end? Recovery or death. death. Good. Everybody at one o'clock said death. It's really negative. (laughs) Everybody does die eventually. Everybody does eventually die. That's true. But if we're talking cancer, right? It can take people or you get it fixed, right? When do the symptoms start showing up? And again, we're talking cancer here. I know this isn't TBI, right? But bear with me. Where do the symptoms start showing up with cancer, usually? In the second half of the disease or in the first half? Second half. Second half. So can you go for a very long period of time with tumors and not have any indication? Okay. Let's go ahead and talk about brain injury now. When do the symptoms usually show up with a brain injury? If this is the injury, when do the symptoms usually show up? It can be later. It can be a couple weeks later. This can sometimes take a very long time to really be apparent because the symptoms are so nebulous. Remember, we're talking about a syndrome, your whole collection of symptoms. Sometimes it's really easy to really put those numbers together, but sometimes it's 10 years later, you're going, man, my kid's just not right. I mean, they, they went from where they were happy, good all the time, to all, you know, just gradually over time, they're making dumb decisions. They don't have that processing speed like they, they really seem like they always did. Maybe you put this together and we're already way down here. Or we're already, you know, like I said, maybe 10 years post-injury. Is it easier to treat, go back to cancer for a second, is it easier to treat cancer in the first half or the second half of the disease? What about TBI? First half. The sooner you can have some kind of treatment, the easier this thing is to resolve and the more completely you can get it to resolve. Okay, so just to, just to reinforce that getting a diagnosis, getting the testing done and getting treatment of some kind early on is going to be better than later. If you're suspicious at all, get that person checked out or get yourself checked out. So conventional treatments, conventional recommendations right now, this is this is current. This is from the 2018, we don't have a 2019 guide yet, from the 2018 guide to concussions. It says that the only thing you can do is rest. Yep, rest. A lot of the recommendations for rest right now are not only just rest, but no screen time, no reading, no severe mental activity, definitely no physical activity. Now, the research we have now says, yes, we have to avoid that second injury, but physical activity is good. Low-key physical activity actually helps the brain repair. Walking, low-key, yeah, hiking, low-key activities that don't have much of a risk of a head injury are actually beneficial. You do want to avoid excessive screen time, but even that doesn't seem to have as much of an impact as we thought. Mental, simple mental exercises are also good. So playing board games, um, simple things that you can do uh, with kids or with each other, putting a puzzle together. That stuff is good. That is helpful. Putting somebody in a darkened out, blacked out room and not do anything for five days actually slows down neuroregeneration, that real recovery from the brain. So yes, rest. We don't want the kid going right back into the soccer game. We don't want to jump right back into the adult hockey league we were doing. We want to stay away from some of that stuff that has a chance to cause that second injury. But 
some level of activity is good. Helps the brain recover because you're making the brain work, but you're giving it a chance to do something with what you're making it do. As far as medications go, studies say there are currently no pharmacologic treatments for the secondary injuries that follow a mild TBI or for prevention of cognitive and behavioral problems associated with mild TBI. I'm going to put that into a real simple phrase for you. There's no drugs for TBI. There's no medicine you can take that's going to fix a brain injury. It just isn't. I really wish there was. That'd be wonderful if we had something that we could administer right away, um, over the counter, or whatever, but we don't have that right now. Again, this is not just me making this stuff up either, guys. This is, this is what the research says. Um, so there is a physical therapy, occupational therapy, if you had a severe injury and basically are having difficulty walking and, and lifting and things like that. That's where PT or OT can really come into play. But for a lot of the mild TBI stuff, PT doesn't have a big role in being able to do rehab. Cognitive therapy, we'll talk about that one. That's actually a very good tool. Um, and we'll talk about that one. But a little bit more on the uh, medications first. Treatment options for TBI have been painfully limited, they say. Um, pharmacology has been limited to symptomatic amelioration, meaning it covers up symptoms. That's where we're, they're coming from with medications. Is that what medications are made to do, though? Yeah, most of the time. Most of your medications out there are designed to cover up symptoms. There's a few that actually address the cause. Like if you have a bacterial infection, take antibiotics, hey, we're addressing the cause. I like that. That's good. But in this case with TBI, all the drugs we have are only really targeted to symptomatic amelioration. And studying drugs to directly treat concussion and brain injury, all the studies have failed. So the worst thing is that the antipsychotics some of the drugs that they will actually prescribe for this have been shown to be neurotoxic and can potentially impede any neurological regeneration which might otherwise occur. So now we're going from, well, we're covering up symptoms to now we're actually keeping you from healing. So there are times where some of these medications are necessary. I'm not going to argue that point. There are times. But for this stuff to be prescribed on a routine basis when the research says it does do no good and can actually slow down healing, I think that is really, really awful. And unfortunately, the drug companies have very little incentive to change things for the way they are right now. So this is my argument against meds. I'm not an anti-med guy. There's definitely a place for them. But in this case, TBI, there's no good reason to have them in 90% of cases. There are cases with severe head trauma that you do need medications to help people function, at least temporarily. But every time you can avoid medications, especially with a new traumatic brain injury, it's really important that you do. One more here from another study saying, despite reviewing a whole bunch of different studies on drug treatment for the behavioral side of effects after a uh, traumatic brain injury, evidence doesn't support any treatment standards and just a few guidelines. So we're, when somebody gets prescribed drugs, after a traumatic brain injury, it's somebody kind of going down the limb saying, well, maybe this will work. It's not really proven, but maybe it'll work. Okay, another little bit of a sideline, maybe, you might think, but state of healthcare in the U.S., are we in good shape or bad shape in the U.S.? What's your opinion? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. Let's put that into some numbers, though. We are about 5% of the world's population, and we spend more than the rest of the world combined on healthcare. You'd think maybe we're getting our money's worth, right? Unfortunately not, no. Um, 
the life expectancy in the U.S. went down for the third year in a row. That's never happened before in history for the developed world. We have some problems. We have some major problems. We're spending more than everybody else, and we're getting less out of it. We're not getting longer lifespan, certainly. We also consume 75% of all medications used in the world and 90% of the opioids. Um, that should ring a lot of alarm bells for all of us. It really should. That says we have something that's wrong with our health system. Or something, right? Something's wrong. What? What's wrong? Where does all that come from? Is it a culture problem? Are we just super, super addictive here in the U.S.? Are we, we just really like our drugs? I mean, okay, maybe, I don't know. That's hard to measure. Maybe that's part of it, but it would be really hard for us to say we're that different from everybody else. Does pharmaceutical industry have any incentive to get you off of medication? No, no, no. Who's making the money when you're on drugs? Your doctor? Pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals also set up what's called the standards of care, which is what your doctor is required to follow underneath your, what your insurance says. It's a big circle of money. The pharmaceutical industry is now the largest industry in the world. It's bigger than agriculture, it's bigger than the military. They make more money than everybody else. The American Medical Association, American Medical Association, is the one who sets up those standards. Only 30% of your MDs are actually members of the AMA. So who's the other 70%? That's a problem. A big part of the FDA, federal, the, the uh, Food and Drug Administration, a lot of their hired people leave the FDA after a few years, after getting things accomplished, and go work for the pharmaceuticals. But also a lot of the insurance companies, they, they actually will employ doctors to deny your claims, and those oh, yes. aren't part of the AMA either. They're part of Yes. I went to school with one. She never practiced a day in her life. She's never seen a patient. She sits at her desk and she turns down care for people. That's what they paid me six figures for. Oh yeah, she gets paid way better than I do. So we've got we've got issues. Yeah. And and I know that doesn't I know that's not TBI specific, but we need to understand what's going on here. Um, because our, our current standard of care for TBI is terrible. Um, the opioid crisis that's finally getting some attention, more than 70,000 people died in the U.S. in 2017 from opioid-related causes. That's greater per capita than every other country on Earth. And that's more than we had died in the Vietnam War in 20 years. That was just 2017. You think 2018 was any better? No, no. No. Think we're doing any better this year? No, no. Not yet. To the point where opioids are now the leading cause of death for all Americans under the age of 50. That's a problem. That's a real serious problem. We've got to do something about this. Which we're starting to. We're starting to take some of these guys to court. Anybody heard about these lawsuits? Taking Purdue to court, um, and it is, they're actually getting accused of manufacturing this whole crisis so they could prescribe other medications for the addictive opioids. So we're starting to. We're starting into the right direction here. We've got a long way to go. Um, okay, so not to beat the medication horse to death here over and over again, but this is part of the standard of care right now for TBI. They say you can do Tylenol, acetaminophen, if you've got something, uh, if you've got to have something for like a headache. They don't want you doing ibuprofen and aspirin because they can create more bleeding. So if there's some level of bleeding on the brain, they don't want you taking that. 
Let me ask you guys though. If you got bleeding on the brain, should you be popping Tylenol or maybe you're getting checked out? <laughs> okay. So I'm done beating on the medications now, and you guys probably get what I'm saying there. This particular condition is not one we want to have medications for. Now, talking about PT, again, if you've had some severe TBI and motor issues with walking, moving, speaking, physical therapy, occupational therapy can be very helpful. As far as the cognitive function, not really as much. There's not a lot that your traditional PTs are able to do for returning uh, cognitive function. Uh, thinking. Cognitive therapy, though, does seem to be helpful in a lot of cases for attention deficits, memory deficits, the social communication issues that pop up, executive functioning, that's higher level decision making, and then as well as reducing the cognitive and functional disability after a trial like brain injury. So cognitive therapy can, can be beneficial. We see problems with cognitive therapy not working when there's enough damage that the parts of the brain aren't talking to each other. Then you can work on some money with this particular therapy all day, and because the brain's not able to communicate, it never pays off. So is this something worth trying? Absolutely, probably a part of a good treatment plan for a significant symptom, TBI, but not always enough. Okay, now we do laser therapy here. I'm not doing this to push laser therapy on you guys, but in the last five to 10 years, we've had huge amounts of research come out about laser therapy in traumatic brain injury or stroke. And we'll also talk a little bit about regenerative injection, stem cell. Um, so for those of you who don't know, laser therapy uses safe, non-invasive infrared light to drive increased circulation into deep tissues. It actually selectively targets damaged areas and promotes healing there specifically. Therapeutic laser also pushes more oxygen from the blood flow into those damaged areas and then speeds up cellular metabolism. If we're talking about healing brain, if we can speed up the way at which things run and increase, increase circulation, is it likely we're gonna heal faster? Absolutely, that's, that's a big piece of returning the brain to normal. So I've got way too many slides of science stuff here. I'm, a complete nerd. So, sorry, but we're just going to freeze them real quick. Um, they say light can increase cerebral blood flow with some improvement of neurological conditions, even in severely head injured patients. You can have improved sleep, fewer PTSD symptoms, which if that's a part, that's sometimes a part of people's traumatic brain injuries. Uh, better ability to perform social, interpersonal, and occupational work functions. Um, Laser therapy appears to induce a persistent, a long-lasting change in neurological function and a neuroregenerative change of repair of the brain. Also shows promise in improving cognitive function and cerebral blood flow, even several years after TBI. So outside of our two-year window. How, how long would you study as far as several years? That particular study was looking at five to 10. It was kind of a big range. They didn't have a whole lot of participants. It was hard to nail down who was five to 10 years post. But they were they were all well past that two year window. Okay. So is pulse lighting the same as the laser? Yes, pulse lighting is just a matter of how much flashing you get. A lot of light therapy will use a steady light called okay. continuous mm -hmm. wave. Pulse light has a particular flashing right. to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been shown to accelerate wound healing for one thing, but also to reduce neurological deficits following stroke and improved outcomes in spinal cord injuries. 
um, neuroprotection, protecting the other brain tissues and reducing inflammation, stimulating neurogenesis, uh, reducing the chronic symptoms of traumatic brain injury, which are the symptoms of headaches, sleep disturbance, cognition, mood dysregulation, anxiety, and irritability. Uh, highly favorable outcomes with depression, anxiety, headache, insomnia, uh, cognition and quality of life improve, neurological function appear to improve, and laser can safely and effectively treat chronic symptoms of TBI. So when we say chronic, we're talking about the past the two-year window, stuff that's been trying to stick around. Um, Reports of improvement in executive function, uh, working memory, improved sleep, um, better activation of the intrinsic brain networks that are usually damaged by TBIs. Also, decreasing the inflammatory response and helping to protect the brain after a TBI. So the sooner you can get on it, the quicker you can actually protect those networks. Uh, improving ATP. Anybody remember um, ATP? Sounds familiar at all? High school biology, maybe? ATP is the little packets of energy the cells use. If you can get more of that, those cells can actually regenerate and even multiply and divide. Improves blood flow, increase, uh, decreases the metabolic process, meaning decreases the length of time that metabolism takes. So laser seems to increase the intercellular synapses, so actually making the brain talk to itself better making a possible treatment for acute and chronic TBI. Also, um, cognitive impairment. The most exciting prospect is the, the possibility that laser may stimulate both neurogenesis, the ability of the brain to repair itself, and synaptogenesis, encouraging cells to form new connections. So not only repairing the, da the damage, but also getting these parts to talk to each other like they're supposed to again. Giant wall of text again, sorry. But, um, this is kind of neat. I'm going to read a little bit of this one to you. So one participant in this study doing laser, and this was um, five years post-injury, one participant was able to write checks and pay bills for the first time since a motor vehicle accident five years prior. Another participant, his traumatic brain injury was caused by having been pulled into a blast furnace, which sounds terrible. His recurring nightmares of that, which had lasted for two years, yeah, uh, me too, um, that would be terrible. Uh, but his recurring nightmares uh, ceased after he was done with his treatment plan with laser. One of the participants was active duty military, had been unable to return to his unit for three years after being exposed to a, a blast TBI. After the treatment plan, he was able to return to his unit for further evaluation, and he had improved sleep and improved cognition also. So you can take somebody recent or chronic and actually be able to get some level of results and stimulate that repair process. So, um, what we do with our folks is we very individually evaluate everybody. So, we have a lot of experience with concussion. If you're looking for somebody to evaluate somebody <coughs> for concussion, we do that. There's a lot, there's, there's a number of other places that are up to par and doing well with concussion evaluation too. There's some folks that are not really on board. We had a lot of folks here at the one o'clock who are quite upset with their doctors about um, their results. If you know somebody, you know they're actually taking your condition seriously, hang on to that. But they should be, and we carefully evaluate the individual condition and recommend the procedures which are appropriate, whatever care that might be. We try to have the best training, best protocols, and the lowest cost we can possible, because we're a part of this community too. 
we take this pretty personally. We try and keep our success rate as close to 100% as we can. We're at, we hover right around 98%. Okay, so we're going to end today's episode there. If you have additional questions about laser therapy and treating traumatic brain injuries in particular, go back to last week's episode where we did uh, a whole podcast on TBI as well. I hope with today's episode as well as last week's together, you can have a good understanding on what TBIs are and how they can be addressed uh, with laser therapy in particular. If you have concerns, questions, if you're trying to find somebody that can help with traumatic brain injuries, please go to lasertherapyinstitute.org. There you can find a clinic near you that specializes in laser therapy. If you're having a hard time still finding somebody, please just email us. We will help you out with that. So until next week, thanks very much for joining us. Subscribe to this weekly podcast for more great information. Find a certified laser therapy clinic near you at lasertherapyinstitute.org. If you are a healthcare provider, check out our practitioner-focused Laser Therapy Institute podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.